Well, um, it is a real blessing to serve with uh, a number of men who are capable to come and preach the word. I'm thankful for Stephen, for Russ, for Tucker. Uh, these last few weeks have given me time to, uh, to really pray and to seek the Lord and to try to put together, work to put together uh, a lot of our small group stuff coming up. And I'm excited about that. Um, this week, I noticed something. On Facebook, I have like 2,000-something friends. Some of you have way more than that. Some of you less than that. I don't really care uh, how many I have or you have. But uh, a lot of my friends this week came out of the woodwork to wish me happy birthday. You ever notice how that happens? People I've never talked to, I really don't even know if we're friends. But somehow, we're you know, friends. And uh, they came out to, to wish me a happy birthday. I had a, kind of a, a big birthday this week. And uh, I can't really blame them because I, I find myself doing that too. Somebody's got a birthday. I'm like, hey man, happy birthday. Who's that guy again? You know? <laughs> um, but that's the nature of social media, isn't it? It made me wonder a little bit um, how we're not short on acquaintances. You know, we have tons of friends these days. But are we truly known by any of them? I think our culture right now is the most connected and most disconnected we've ever been. Think back to creation for a minute. The creation story. God creates. He separates the light from the dark. The, the land from the water. He, um, the sun, the moon, the stars are given their roles. And after creating... At each day, God looks with joy on what he's done and he has a statement about it. What does he say? It is what? Good. Well, on day six of creation, God made man. He made Adam. And for the first time, God looks at his creation and he says, it is not good that man should be alone. I want you to think for a minute. This is before sin, before deception, before evil. Adam had perfect fellowship with God. Perfect communion with God. He was with God day in, day out, walking with God in the garden and all of that. And yet God looks at Adam and says, it is not good that man should be alone. God confirms over his creation that something is not Good. I've heard people say that there's a, a God-sized hole in all of our hearts. And that expression makes good sense. And it's true in that without a relationship with God, you'll never be fully satisfied. You'll never be full of joy forever. And yet, according to God himself, there's actually a people-shaped hole. Inside of the human heart as well. God made us with the distinct need for relationship. So here's the truth. We need to love and be loved. Usually this reference in this context of creation and Adam and Eve, it usually points our minds toward marriage and rightfully so. The loving relationship between a husband and wife. I mean, in context, God did meet Adam's 
deep need for love and relationship with Eve, with a wife. And they uh, had, had a family. I mean, this was the way God met that need. And yet, that's not the only application of this principle. We are created for real relationships. We all need to be known and to be loved. Now, maybe you're willing to acknowledge that with me, that we have a deep need to know and be known and to love one another. Right. You guys willing to say yes to that? Okay. well, at the same time, did you know that our deepest need is also probably one of our deepest and biggest challenges? Think for a minute. Why is it that real relationship is so hard? And I'll tell you, it's because sin is social. Sin is social. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? The immediate result between the two of them was hiding in shame and attacking with blame. What we learn here is that shame and blame are social effects of sin. Our sin breaks us, not just uh, in our separation with God. It does separate us from God, but it also turns us against each other. Now, if you're married, you know this to be true, (laughs) right? We hide from one another. We blame one another. It's not not my fault. She did that, right? Or he did that. This would all be good if he just you know, fill in the blank. John, I'm with you. I'm laughing too, buddy. So here's the thing. What have we done to, to compensate for our deepest need and our biggest challenge? What have we done? We've made it easy to be in the same place, but not in real relationship. We've created a setting where we can be friends and not be known and not know And not genuinely love. Think about it. On an elevator. Or maybe in a subway. People cram in close together. They ride along beside total strangers. Headed in the same direction. Sharing a space. But not sharing life. They are alone. Together. Now, did I just describe being in an elevator or coming to church? Are we alone together? If we're honest, even in a crowd, in a group this size, there is still a sense of aloneness, isn't there? You're sitting next to people who don't really know the hurts you have. They don't really know the struggles you're walking through. If they did, they may not like you. They may not love you. Those are all the things rolling around in our minds. So with our deepest need of real relationship and our hardest challenge because sin is social, what do we do? We create a false world where we are friends with each other. And we are content with that on the surface. But deep inside, we know we need more. Well, let me say... All of this is because or is I'm telling you all this because discipleship, real discipleship is messy. Amen. But you know why it's messy? Because you're messy. Right. And I'm messy. 
Our lives are messy. And if we're honest and real about them, we got problems. How many of you this morning would say, I'm not perfect? Okay, put your hands down. The rest of you just lied and clarified for us that you are not perfect, right? You just joined the crowd. So the truth is, none of us have got it all together. So when we attempt to do life-on-life discipleship, it's going to be messy. Real discipleship will be. I love where Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15. It's one of my favorite teachings from Paul because he says this. Let your progress be seen by all. I love that. Progress. Not perfection. He doesn't say let your perfection be seen. He says let your progress be seen by all. Meaning, let people know how messy you are. And let them know who you are becoming. Progress. I don't know about you, I have always loved before after photos. Before and after photos. Anybody else like that at 3 a.m., that's how the infomercial gets me, right? I get sucked in when I see uh, this lady who used to wear these pants, right? But now she's in like one leg of them. She fits her whole body in there. Or this man was 587 pounds and now he's a 215-pound, you know, like muscle guy. Or This kid's face was just blown up with acne, right? But now his face is smooth as a baby's face. Right? It's the before-after thing that always gets me. I love the the, the visual imagery of transformation. But you know what? The after is not near as compelling without the before. So many of us live our lives, especially on social media, and all we want people to know is our after. We're so good at hiding before. We're also so good at hiding in process. You see, I'm not who I was. And I'm not yet who I will be. I'm right here. And I'm still a mess. But discipleship is messy. God is still changing us. And we give glory to Jesus. When people see and hear the real, raw stories of transformation, both the before, the during, and hopefully the after. Your story is not finished, right? Neither is mine. He's still changing us. In the spiritual journey of discipleship, becoming like Christ, too much concern for reputation will hinder transformation. If you spend your life hiding who you really are, you will not become who you want to be. I I got a a real good kick this week out of a video. Um, So we'll cue that up for us. A video of a guy um, trying to show his wife how um, like big and muscular his arms are um, after just a few days in the gym. I'm not real sure why this struck me so funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, this lady, I'm going to show you this video because I think it's hilarious. I hope you think it is. Honey, look at me looking like this. And then when I flex. I want to pee you up and be honest, face to face, and please honestly. You just go to the big breathing. You think it's someone else? Look at this physical progress, honey. Nothing changed at all. 
Requires honesty. Listen, posers. You know what I mean when I say posers? Somebody who's posing. They don't make progress. They just put deeper roots into bad soil. To make disciples, we must be real and raw in our relationships. So disciple making is messy and it's beautiful. There is a family style gathering here every Thursday night. And I love it. People who aren't afraid to let their hair down, to stand in front of a group and just ride out with their biggest, most shameful problems. They're real with one another. They come to know the beauty of being loved through their mess. I wonder, why do you think Celebrate Recovery provides an environment for real life change. Why do you think that? Well, I'll tell you, it's because people are done pretending. And they really want to be different. They really want change. As long as you're pretending, you don't really want change. You just want people to think there's been change. People come to CR because it's it's a place to be safe. It's a place that's safe to be Real. Well, the church needs to be more like that. This church, our gospel community, aims to be a place that's safe, but not comfortable. Here's what I mean. Safe, meaning you can be the real you. Not comfortable, meaning we're going to love you enough to not leave you who you are. We're all in process. We're all changing. And that's the reason we need each other. Disciple making takes a village. We're in this together. Amen? Okay, so Jesus called 12 disciples to follow him. It wasn't just a me and Jesus kind of relationship. There was a small crowd. By the end of his ministry, there's over 120 that are gathered following Jesus. No one there thought, you know, I've got the the one-on-one. We got this one-on-one thing going, me and Jesus. No, it was always a community and Christ effort. It's always been that way. It always will be. That's what the church is. We are a community of disciples discipling one another as we follow Christ together. So that leads us to our scripture. All that was introduction. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Would you stand with me as we read and honor God's word? Hebrews chapter 10. In this text, we're going to see that the gospel rescues and redeems us into a community. And in this community, we call it church. In this church, we are being sanctified. We are growing in maturity, growing in love for God and for 
others. So Hebrews chapter 10, I want us to read verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. It is through him that we have access to you. It is through him that we have been adopted into a family and we have one another. God, would you help us today to stop pretending to let down our walls and to welcome real relationship for the glory of God and our good in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So the author of Hebrews is unknown. But he obviously is fluent in Jewish life and tradition. All throughout this letter, he makes reference to the temple, to the priest, the Jewish sacrificial systems. And all of those references, he's showing what was as a shadow. And he's saying, and now what is in Christ is so much better. All through this letter, it's a beautiful writing. In fact, if you, um, as you've tried to read through the Bible, if you stumbled into Leviticus and you were like, whoa, Genesis and Exodus were, were rocking, man. I read so good. And then I hit Leviticus and was like, oh, my. Read Leviticus in tandem with Hebrews. And what you'll see is the, the, the systematic sacrificial system, all the details point us to Jesus Christ. And here the writer, this chapter begins by comparing the shadow of an old system with the reality that Jesus is the fulfillment. For example, look at look at verse 11 in chapter 10. I just want you to see in verse 11, it's really clear this comparison contrast. The writer says, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. There's the there's the contrast of the old system. Now look at it. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Isn't that good? What was the system was never sufficient. What Christ came to do, his sacrifice is fully sufficient for all time, for all sin. Oh, that is beautiful. Good news. Let me say it this way. All of us are sinners, right? You just raised your hand a minute ago to say that, right? We're all sinners. Some of you lied, but 
But now we've made it clear. We're all sinners. That means that we have disobeyed and dishonored a holy God. There is nothing you will ever do for yourself that will make you right with God. You can offer as many sacrifices as many times as you want. You can go to any priest and he can offer sacrifices for you. It won't matter. Hebrews, the writer says, none of that can take away sin. We are saved only by trusting fully in Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection. We could sing it. What can wash away my sin? That's right. That's what the writer here is saying. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. I want you to notice a few more pieces of good news before we get into our text. Look at verses 16 and 17. God makes some promises that are such good news. Look at what verse 15 says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and here's a quote, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer need for offering. Sacrifice for sin. You may want to write these down. I didn't put it in your notes. But listen, three beautiful promises that are good news to us. First, God puts his law on our hearts and on our minds. I don't know if you know this, but your problem is not just that you've done bad things. Do you know that? Your problem is that your heart is bad. And your mind is corrupt. This is the effect, the inward effect of sin. It's not just that we do bad things. It's that we want to do bad things. Our hearts love evil and hate God. This is what makes us lost. And this is why the Old Testament promises that God will take out of us our heart of stone that is hardened toward Him and put into us a heart of flesh that is softened. And this is the work of renewing the mind that when we read the the beautiful truths of Scripture, we're not turned off like, what is this? What is this foolishness? That's the old mind. A new mind says, look at the beauty of truth about God. The promise from God is that in salvation, He gives us a new heart and a new mind and He puts His law on our heart and on our mind to love it. God doesn't just transform your behavior. He changes what you want. You with me? That's a beautiful promise. Look at what's next. Another promise of God is that he will remember our sins no more. That's huge for me because there's some that I can't forget. But God refuses to call it to mind. He has chosen To look at me and you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's chosen to look at you in light of his son. That's good news. And thirdly, this scripture says where there's forgiveness of these, there's there's no longer a need for sacrifices. So the promise is this. God is putting a stop to endless effort. 
by his grace and by the fulfillment of Jesus' sacrifice. This is good news, right? This is the good news of the gospel. You can be forgiven of sin, transformed so that you actually know and love God's law, and you can have unhindered access to God Almighty. You didn't have to kill a duck to come to worship today, right? You didn't have to, like, slaughter an animal to be in here in the presence of God. Are you you tracking? We come into God's presence through Christ. This is good news. We are rescued by the blood of Jesus as we fully trust in Christ alone. But this gospel doesn't just rescue us, it redeems us into a family. I want you to notice that verse 19, the text that we're looking at begins, therefore brothers. It's a very communal approach. So because of all the gospel that we've just discussed, the the once for all sacrifice of Jesus and the promise of forgiveness and relationship with God, we together have confidence to enter the holy place by his blood. Mm, That's how he begins in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I don't have time to go fully at length here. But let me just say this. The holy place is a reference to the centermost um, place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It's where the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. That sacrifice was meant to cover their sins. It was a day of atonement, covering. But there were all kinds of washings and cleansings, rituals that the priest had to go through in order to go into the Holy of Holies. He himself had to be cleansed of sin. He couldn't go into God's presence. If he did, he would be struck dead immediately. Why is that? Because our God is holy. And sin cannot come into his presence. That needs to sit on us. Because we make, when we make light of sin, we are making light of the holiness of God. I want you to imagine a high priest having gone through all of these ceremonial washings, several, several ceremonial baths. He's killed different animals. The blood has been applied to him. And then suppose he walks in to the Holy of Holies and he thinks... An angry thought of resentment toward someone who's mistreated him. What happens to that priest? Death. An angry thought? Seriously? Yes. It was so serious that they would tie little bells to the bottom of the priest's garment so that they could hear him moving around. And anytime it got too still, they didn't hear the little jingle bells, they would get worried. Uh oh, what's happened to Eli? Oh, yeah, I hear it. He's good. They came up with like a just in case plan, right? Just in case he goes in there with sin, we got to figure something out. So they tied a rope around the high priest. If he fell down dead, they would just you know drag that guy out of there. You know, it made me think um, this week we were talking about it refuel. It made me think, you know, how'd you like to be? You know, Plan B, like the backup guy. <laughs> He's over here in the on deck circle, and they're like. 
Joseph, you're up, man. Sorry. Uh, tough spot to be. But, but seriously, one person, once a year, and even then, he better be on his game. But now, Jesus has opened a way for us. You and me. Are you serious? We can come into the presence of a holy God without bells, without a rope. Really? Do you deserve it? No. Nor do I. But we get to live in his presence and abide in access to God by the blood of Jesus. And only by the blood of Jesus, he has made a way for us. This is a crazy, amazing gospel. Doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus can make you clean. Doesn't matter who you've been. Jesus changes who you are. This is the good news of the gospel. And if it hasn't gripped you yet, maybe it will today. I pray it does. I want you to notice the context of all this good news is not just to you as an individual. It's to us as a people. A family of brothers and sisters, children of God. The the writer of Hebrews, he has three collective exhortations. He says, so let us, let us, let us. And I want us to look now at those exhortations. These next few verses serve as a guide for us as we disciple one another through the gospel. All of our discipleship is rooted in these beautiful gospel truths of being forgiven by grace, welcomed into his presence by grace and changed by grace. All of that is the root system of discipleship. The ultimate mission of Mountain View Church is simple. To make disciples who make disciples. And if we do that well, we will inevitably plant churches who make disciples. You think, well, that's really oversimplified. Maybe, but it's really the mission Jesus gave us. And we as a church want to be laser focused to do what he said. It's not that we won't do other things. It's just we're definitely going to do that. So these exhortations are for us together. If you're taking notes, the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God through Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I are welcomed into relationship with God. It's not just that we have access to him one time a year. Although that would be amazing. You are welcomed into intimacy with God Almighty. It's a restoration of the relationship that was broken in the garden. What was severed in the garden was healed at the cross. In Christ, the scripture says we have a true heart. In Christ, we have full assurance. How is that? Well, because we've been cleansed. And we've been washed by Jesus. 
These are all allusions, remember, to an old system now fulfilled in Christ. So our first aim then is not just knowledge about God, but relationship with God. Now listen, there's a big difference. Making disciples then is not just transferring information. It's not just telling people what you know. Those ladies that you meet with on a regular basis, their biggest need from you is not your knowledge. It is your thriving, intimate relationship with God. Those guys you're hanging out with and studying the Bible together, they don't need to think you know a lot. Don't try to impress them. Instead, let them see your satisfaction and joy in relationship with God Almighty through Jesus Christ. Let them see how Jesus is still changing you. I love verse 14 of Hebrews 10. It says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. interesting, isn't it? Notice the tenses, the verb tenses. He has perfected. Like done, completed task. Those who are being sanctified. That's interesting, isn't it? We are being sanctified. Abide in Jesus and you will bear much fruit. Isn't that what Jesus said? So we need, as a church, as a community, we need your relationship with God to be strong. Your personal walk with Christ matters to the whole body. So draw near, not just for 10 minutes in the morning, but more like the way you eat or drink. More like the way you breathe. You wouldn't live your life where you wake up in the morning, you go, "Hmm, you know what? Probably take a breath today. Okay, let's go. No, we don't live like that, right? Because we need air like every five seconds. We need God more than that. You've been given access. And so Jesus says, abide. Don't take it for granted. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast. Our hope rests in the promises of God. He is faithful to keep his promises. That's what that scripture says. So we hold fast by taking bold faith steps, trusting that God is faithful. This has been a theme through the book of Hebrews. And I know we've not studied the book, but in in chapter three, it's the same exhortation. He says in chapter three to, to, to hold fast our confidence And then he says, not like the children of Israel whom Moses set free from Egypt. For they rebelled and for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Ultimately, they did not enter into God's promised land, right? Instead, they actually wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. They grumbled about God's provisions. And they doubted God's power 
to give them the promised land. If you remember, only Joshua and Caleb believed God would give them the land. You guys remember the story? Um, they, they got up to the edge of the promised land. They sent in 12 men to sort of spy it out and look at what's going on. And the 12 came back and uh, they came back saying, oh, it's awesome. It's beautiful. The land flowing with milk and honey it's just as he promised. But there's some big people there. We're like grasshoppers. We can't take them. Meanwhile, Joshua and Caleb come walking in with like a thing of grapes on their shoulders. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're big, but we got this. God's promised it. God has promised we should hold fast to the promise of God. We can do this. And unfortunately, they were not in the majority. They did not trust the promise of God. Listen to me, church. All we have is the promise of God. That's all we have. If he's not faithful to his word, we're all in trouble. All of us. All we have is to trust that God is a God who keeps his promises. And he is. And he will. So the exhortation here is to hold fast. And what this means is to cling tightly to the promises of God. Well, how do we do that? Well, think about this illustration. Ten of twelve men lost their grip. Two of them holding tight and they're like, what are you afraid of? Don't fear. We can do this. He's promised. He's faithful. There will be days where you are one of the two. Where you need to shout back to the other ten. Come on. Let's go. We got this. We can go. God is faithful. He's promised. He's good. And there will be days where you are one of the ten. Doubting, struggling, floundering in fear. And you know what you need? You need those two brothers or sisters to come along and say, come on, hold tight to the promise of God. He's faithful. This is a calling into community, church. It's the value of gathering together in small groups like we're talking about, life groups. When God calls us to exercise big faith, we oftentimes need to be reminded that he is faithful. Thirdly, let us stir up one another to love and good works. The Bible actually says, let us consider how to stir up one another. So what I take from that word consider is just the idea of intentionality. It's not enough just to have Relationship. It's not enough just to be together, watch a little football, say, hey, man, have a good have a good one. See you, bro. That's not enough. We have to be intentional in relationship with one another to stir each other up. The imagery in my mind that we discussed this Wednesday night is that of a, of a fire. You know, a fire begins to dwindle once the once the coals begin to lose heat. And if you were to take one of those coals and put it over here by itself, hot Red hot burning coal. You take it out of the flame and you put it over here. What happens? It goes dark. It goes cold. Jesus warned of that. In Matthew 24, verse 12, he says, In that day, the love of many will grow cold. And so we here are exhorted to stir.
stir one another up and to consider how to do it. Like, how can I provoke this brother to cling tightly to the promises of God? What can I say to him? What? Oh, I know, I know, I know. There's a verse. I'm going to consider how to stir him up with the promises of God. Maybe he doesn't need some cliche phrase of, of churchy language. Maybe he just needs you to be there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sometimes right in the middle of a dark moment, the, 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 the right little pungent truth just gets all wrong. You with me? Yeah. Sometimes it's not about what you say. It's about just being with people. This is how we consider to stir people up. But how do we do it? Well, the writer gives us two very practical things. He says, gather together. And he says, encourage one another. He specifically, um, he says, not neglecting to meet. And then he adds, as is the habit of some. So meeting together is obviously important. Because he uses the double negative, not neglecting to meet. And then he throws somebody under the bus, right? As is the habit of, you know, them, those guys over there. Um, but the reality is this. We need life and community. We just need it. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, commit yourselves to gathering together with believers. And then he warns, watch out for slipping into the habit of not meeting. It's easy to do, isn't it? Come on, be honest. It's easy to do, right? I mean, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, connect in small group or in community once. Comes around again. You're like, eh, you know, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I mean, we can, you know, we can miss tonight. You miss again. Now we've, we're starting to develop a habit. And the warning here is very clear from the scripture. Do not neglect as is the habit. Beware. It, it, it begins to be a habit. We need to be together. This is especially dangerous today because you can watch church on your device from anywhere. Right? So we've made it really easy. But the truth is we actually need to sort of rub shoulders. We need to look each other in the eye. You need to see me smile and you need to see the face of a brother with empathy and compassion for you. The truth is you can you can listen and podcast sermons. But when you do that, you're reducing church to a consumer model. All I really need is to be fed. And so I'm going to listen to this preacher, that preacher, that preacher. And so I'm just a consumer. We're not called into consumption. We're called into community. You can podcast sermons, but you cannot podcast disciple making. It cannot be done. So because your life with Christ matters, commit to gather with God's people. And then lastly, it says encourage one another. Really simply here. These verses have often been used to uh, to tell people come to church. Right. You know, uh, don't neglect the assembly. Right. That was my uh, that's my preacher voice. If you're looking for it. Um, But this exhortation from Scripture is actually not much of a 
of a command to come to church. It's really more of a command to uh, a smaller group. Look at the wording. It says to encourage one another. I mean, the, the, the imagery here is that of um, a less structured, smaller gathering where you're encouraging, they're encouraging. There's this conversation where we're bouncing it and sharpening one another. It's re- this, there's plenty of places in the Bible where the Bible says you need, to, you need to come to church. You need to worship together, pray together, hear the preaching of the word. Plenty of places for that. This, I don't believe, is one of them. I believe this is saying you need real relationships. You need people in your home. You need to be in their home. You need to sit together, have coffee with one another, and encourage each other with the gospel. Maybe in a group like a life group, for example. We need to be encouraged. When it says encourage, it's not just fluffy positivity. Encourage. Go back to that illustration of whether or not the people of God are going to take the land of God's promise. The ten lacked courage. Joshua and Caleb are shouting to them, take courage. That's what we mean. That's what the writer means when he says encourage. He doesn't just mean fluff people up with positivity. So when you have a vision and a passion to do something for Christ... Who's cheering for your faithfulness? When you're wavering in your commitment to Jesus, who's holding you to your word? Who's holding you to your commitment? When you're weak, who's there to love you back to strength? We need each other, right? So church, we're becoming disciples and we are making disciples together. That's what this is all about. This is our aim. Maybe you're in the house today and you realize that God is so holy and you are a sinner and your only hope is Jesus. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you about how you can become a follower of Christ. Maybe you're here today or listening online and you're listening and you're thinking, I desperately need to be in a small group of some kind, encouraging, stirring each other up. I desperately need that. Well, in a couple of weeks, we're planning to launch about 10 life groups, looking for a couple more people to host. And if you're willing to host or you want to commit to a group, I'd like to know about it, okay? There's a a card somewhere near you. If you want to fill that out, put your information on there and just say, You can either say, hey, I'd like to know more about following Jesus and I'll be sure to contact you. Or you could say, I'd like to host a group or I'd like to be in a group. I'd like to talk with you about that. All right. Amen. This is the God's word to us today. Let us draw near. Let us. You guys come on up. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast our confession and let us stir one another up toward love and good deeds. Let's pray.